You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Excited to continue our series uh, called The Local Church, uh, God's Plan for His People. We're going to be looking at different passages uh, that help us to understand the local church and, and what it means to be a part uh, of the local church. Uh, and one of the reasons I think this is so vital today is, uh, is one, in many ways, perhaps for the first time um, in, uh, in nearly a century, we've gone through such an experience as a, as a nation, as a people, that we were prohibited and unable uh, to, to meet for a season. And we've had to navigate uh, figuring out life on the other side of, uh, of COVID. And it's not really on the other side of COVID. I don't know where we're at, but whatever it is right now, we got to figure out life right now. And uh, and also, we, uh, we continually um, are faced with struggles of uh, times in, in our culture, people deconstructing their faith or disconnecting their faith from the church. It's not uncommon to hear, I love Jesus, but I'm not down with the church. Uh, or, um, you know, I've been hurt by the church. Um, and there, there have been some real struggles and challenges, obviously, when people have walked through uh, difficult experiences in the church or, or maybe uh, have had an experience where um, you've, you've had questions about, so what should a church do? How, why, who should the leaders of the church be? What, what, should, um, <clears throat> what should a church believe? Various questions and issues, issues that arise. What should the church be doing? It looks like some churches are kind of a, uh, a country club, kind of enclosed to themselves. And then at other times, it looks like uh, the church is like woven into the community and, and, and active and, uh, and vibrant and serving. What, what should we be doing? How should we be uh, functioning as a people? And these aren't questions where we just want to look at what this book says or what this thought says or what this denomination says or what these people say, or uh, you surely don't want to just hear what I think. I want us to look at what God's word says and, and ask ourselves as a church at Treasuring Christ, are we aligning with and measuring up to what God's word says, as well as to equip us as a people, as a group of believers to rightly value the church as we ought, as well as to participate in the life of the church as we ought. Um, and, and, and for many of you, as you're committed, uh, we have committed members here at Treasuring Christ. I hope this is an encouragement and a challenge to you. Uh, if you're looking for a church, this is, I pray, a, a hopeful, uh, an encouragement and a, and a challenge to you as you think about how to prioritize and think through the various issues that come into thinking about a local church. And, um, and so uh, the, the heart behind looking at the question of what is the local church is to help us to really understand if we're God's people, what is God's plan for his people? And the answer to that question continually, time and time again in the scriptures, takes us back to the local church. Um, and so today we're, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, which can uh, in many ways rightly be called the birth of the church. But I just want to remind us briefly what we looked at last week in Matthew 16, because I think it's a, uh, an important and a vital uh, passage. It's really the first of two times where the word church occurs and the Gospels and, and all of the Gospels. So it's a, uh, really important for us as Jesus uh, mentions the word church. He, he certainly talks about his people in lots of places, but where he talks about the church, it ought to uh, pique our interest. And, and there we saw that Jesus said that, uh, that it is my church. He, he identifies the church as his own and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. 
And we saw that the church is built upon the apostolic testimony of Peter when he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and how the uh, Peter, along with the other apostles, took that testimony and that confession and recorded it in the scriptures and it passed along to us today in the New Testament, along with the Old Testament, making up God's word. Uh, and, and what I want to do is just kind of summarize a few takeaways that we saw last week. One, that the church belongs to Jesus, that it's, it's God's idea, not man's invention. And I, I want to uh, kind of pause on, on this point because a lot of times there's there's kind of a sentiment that I'm, I'm broadly connected with like the universal church or the invisible church, like the church as God sees it, like I'm a part of his people. But I, I kind of struggle to identify with the local church because, well, the local church that I was a part of or that I'm looking to be a part of um, – um, they're just kind of messed up. I don't. I don't really uh, don't want to be a part of that church anymore. Our, our our man has messed up the church. Is kind of the sentiment. But but actually, as we think about the invisible and the visible church, it's it's really meant the invisible church is meant to be an encouragement to us to connect ourselves to the visible church because what we can't see, the invisible church as God sees it, is given expression visible expression in a local church and local churches and groups of believers as they gather together are the visible demonstration that the church belongs to Jesus and that we're living out uh, our identity as his children and as his body uh, as the local church. Now, the church is a people who believe in and follow Jesus. Uh, we're defined uh, by our common confession of Jesus as our Savior. Uh, I remember a while back I was reading a story about in the UK, there are groups that basically are doing church without Jesus. Uh, the idea is that there's such a hunger and desire for community um, that, that people want to gather uh, but they've disconnected that from Jesus. It speaks to the to kind of the heart longing uh, that we we all have that we we want community, we want connection. Um, but what we're so desperately searching for in so many different places is ultimately first and foremost found in Christ, and that then brings us into the body of Christ. So the church is a people who believe in and follow Jesus. And as a church, we're built upon God's word. We look to God's word that that we're not just trying to come together every week and do our best to figure out God. And, and listen to somebody tell us what he thinks or she thinks about God. We're gathering together every day to look at how God has revealed himself, who God has told us that he is. And when we recognize that the church is built upon God's word and the church belongs to Jesus, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the church will prevail in God's plan uh, to accomplish his will and, and his plan on earth as it is in heaven is the church. That's why we said last week, if you want to be a part of something that brings God's will on earth as it is in heaven, if you want to be a part of accomplishing what God intends to do before he comes back, join a local church. Pound for pound, it's the best way to be a part of what God's doing in the world today because he says it's at the center of why Jesus came and why Jesus died was for his church. And so that, that's kind of looking big picture at Jesus's heart for his church. And we ask ourselves, do we share Jesus's heart for the church? Do we value the church like Jesus does? Well, today in Acts 2, we're going to see how that, um, that vision of the church be, really takes birth in, in an official form here in the book of Acts at, at the time of Pentecost. And before we jump into the passage, I want to kind of zoom out and ask this question because it's important. What is a local church? What, what kind of makes up a local church or essential uh, to understanding what a local church uh, is? Um, there's a few different ways throughout church history that we've sought to articulate this. So in the patristic era, uh, kind of the first few centuries, the formulation uh, of this was what's known in the 
Apostles' Creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, this is before the uh, Roman Catholic Church is founded. So Catholic here means universal, the sense of um, universal church that's across uh, various uh, peoples. Uh, and uh, But here we have the, the early church really asking the question, what is the nature and the essence of the church? And in many ways, the patristic formulation, I think, is an expression of the goals of the church, that the church is apostolic in the sense that it is uh, founded upon the testimony of the apostles. It's Catholic in the sense of universal, that it's not just for one people, it's for all people across the nations, as Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations. It's holy because we belong uh, to God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our lives are to be marked by his character, which is holiness, um, and that we're one, that we're united. Not literally that every believer gathers together in one large church, but that we're united together across our different gatherings in one common confession. In Ephesians uh, chapter 4, it, it talks uh, about this common confession, how we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism that, that speaks to our unity, our common unity and our confession and our identity uh, in Christ. And that unity is important because as uh, as time and circumstances would have it, as we gather together separately, although we're gathering together separately, every church that gathers together is bound by this common confession that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But uh, I think over time uh, we saw uh, that that formulation is, is helpful. I think it speaks to kind of the goals, what we're shooting for, uh, that the church is to be an expression of. In the Reformation, uh, the the question of what is the local church was defined in, in relation to the to the word, to the particularly the, the gospel preached, uh, to the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and then to discipline of, of practicing church discipline in the sense of there being a, a sense of believers being a part of the church. And when believers walk away from the faith and having confessed the faith and joined the church, that the church pursues them and tries to bring them back. Uh, John Calvin says, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted that a church of God exists. Now, if you're a church history buff, you know that in the Reformation, there's obviously a break from the Protestant church, what would be the Protestant church from the Catholic church over an understanding of the gospel, that the gospel is salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not by works plus Jesus. And then you get there uh, in the end, the understanding that righteousness comes through receiving it from Christ. Uh, and that the practice of the church of the Lord's Supper and baptism aren't done in a way that they add to our salvation, but they're done in response to our salvation. And listen, these guys, they got feisty over the Lord's Supper and baptism. If you um, want to read about them, uh, you think we get upset about various issues in the church, the color of the carpet and, you know, what we should sing this song and that song and, uh, you know, the location of the church. Uh, these guys uh, really took the sacrament seriously, the issues of the Lord's Supper and believers' baptism seriously, as we should, uh, without running around actually persecuting one another over it. Uh, they took it seriously because it was an expression of what we believe. These are the ways in which Lord's Supper and baptism, which we put the gospel on display. Tangibly, they are the practices of the church uh, that allow the gospel to be understood uh, by those who gather as a church. But uh, Luther, who also who was kind of the key piece of the Reformation um, <clears throat> and 
Uh, he nailed the 95 Reese's uh, to the door. I'm just getting the theses to the door um, <clears throat> uh, on, uh, on Reformation Day. Uh, well, we uh, also falls on Halloween here in America. Uh, but he boiled it down to this one primary mark for the church. He, he said it was the word that even when there is no other sign than this alone, it would still suffice to prove that a Christian holy people must exist there for God's word cannot be without God's people. And conversely, God's people cannot be without God's word. So the word rightly, purely preached, the, the sacraments or the ordinances uh, administered and, and church discipline practiced is how uh, in the Reformation, uh, the understanding of what a local church was, was defined, these marks of a church. I want to give you a, a Baptist formulation, one that I agree with and that happens to actually come from a guy who is a Baptist. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think what you see in this def, in this formulation is going to be displayed in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and here's the statement that a local church is a group of baptized believers uh, who have committed to one another, covenanted together to meet regularly to worship God through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted from the word of God, to celebrate baptism in the Lord's Supper under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. A local church is a group of baptized believers who covenant together to regularly meet to worship God through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted from the word of God, to celebrate baptism in the Lord's Supper under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. Basically, it's saying that the church is a gathering, and in that gathering, it's a group of believers. And the New Testament understands a person who confesses faith in Christ, professes that faith through believer's baptism, and just assumes they go together, not because baptism saves us, but because baptism is a public announcement of our commitment to Christ. That group of believers, then they commit to one another. There's some sense of commitment in which they gather for worship. They gather for the word. They gather for the ordinances, which scripture shows us as baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll practice the latter today. And they do so with leaders uh, that are qualified according to Scripture to, to lead and serve the church, which the two offices uh, of the um, offices within the church are that of pastors and deacons. Um, and so I think this definition really gets worked out in Acts chapter 2. And I'm not going to seek to formulate that definition point by point. Uh, but, I, but I think it's helpful for us to, to understand what we're talking about when we talk about a group of uh, what a local church is. It's not a Bible study. It's not a parachurch organization. It's not a group of believers who meet occasionally uh, over coffee or drinks to, to hang out and talk about life and discuss God. All of those things have their place. All of those things can be vital for the mission of God and, and encouraging and building us up. But, but a local church is something that God has designed to be patterned and structured in such a way that it's centered upon God's word being proclaimed. It's centered upon the worship uh, of, of Jesus, of celebration of his ordinances, and entrusted to the leadership uh, that God has laid out in Scripture and served uh, by leaders that God has laid out in Scripture. And so Acts 2 takes us, I think, to the heart of, uh, of the birth of the church. It shows us um, a picture of what the first group of believers following Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit did, how they spent their time and what they did as they gathered uh, together. Uh, it, it, at Pentecost, which is 40 days following Jesus's ascension into heaven, uh, Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem and, and pray and wait for the power of God to come and the Holy Spirit to come upon them so that they could then be sent out to, to be his witnesses. So they've been waiting and praying. It says in the upper room, about 120 of them gathered together, waiting and praying. And then on Pentecost, as, uh, as everyone gathers together in Jerusalem to, uh, to celebrate and to, uh, and, and, and worship, not for the sake of Pentecost, Pentecost yet, but for the sake of uh, practicing their uh, practicing Judaism, God shows up. The Spirit comes, and it says that it's a an unmistakably evident uh, 
occasion that happens as the spirit falls there are uh, it says t- flames of fire that are upon their heads and people are speaking in languages that literally because at this time People had gathered together for a celebration of a festival in Jerusalem. Uh, people from all over the, the world had come together, speaking different tongues, different nations. The Jews from different nations had come uh, together, and perhaps even those who were God-fearers had come together. And, and God shows up, and everyone who's come uh, from these different places, it says, if you look in Acts chapter 2, um, <clears throat> there were people who were Medes and Elamites and those from Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus Asia, Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, Arabs, all together, and everyone was hearing God's word in their own tongue. And everyone thought to themselves, these people must have some really good wine because they are drunk out of their minds and they are speaking out of their minds. But Peter stands up, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, he proclaims the gospel. And what we see really happen is that the Spirit comes, the gospel is preached, People respond in repentance and faith, and then the church is formed and gathers. And in many ways, before we jump into the particulars of Acts 2, I want us to see that the church is gospel-formed and spirit-empowered. We saw last week that the church belongs uh, to Jesus, and we said that the gospel really births the church. It's upon the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is Savior and Lord, that the church is formed. But I think a more robust way to say it is that the church is actually formed and that the Spirit, through the gospel, births the church. Because it's not until the Spirit comes that the people of God are called the church. These disciples of Jesus have been gathering together and praying together, but following Pentecost, starting in Acts chapter 5, we see the first reference to this group of believers here in Jerusalem as the church. It's the Spirit of God that comes through the preaching of the gospel that forms the church. So I just want us to to unpack that and understand what happens here in Acts 2 before we get to our passage. We see that the church is a gospel-formed church. See, when the Spirit comes and the people are gathered together and they're hearing everyone speak in their own language, Peter stands up and he raises his voice and he proclaims to them. He says, fellow Jews, this is verse 14 of chapter 2, and the residents of Jerusalem, let me explain to you and pay attention to what I say. Since it is only nine in the morning, we are not drunk as you suppose. On the contrary, this is in fulfillment of the scriptures. And he starts with Joel and he he takes them through what Joel had prophesied in Joel chapter two of how the spirit was going to come and people were going to prophesy and and, and speak uh, God's word so that people might hear and wonders were going to be displayed and signs were to be given and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter stands up and he says, this is what Joel was talking about. God's kept his promises And he goes on to talk to them about how the the promised king who was going to come, it wasn't David or uh, it wasn't David's son, Solomon. There was someone yet still to come, a king who was going to come, who was going to to rule and and sit at God's right hand. It talks about in verses 25 through through 28. And that king was going to come and, and that in this king that the paths of life would be found and that gladness would be had in his presence. He's saying that that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Joel and the fulfillment of the promises of God to David. And he begins to talk about how though everyone in Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem and the Romans at that time had conspired together to put an innocent man named Jesus to death, what they meant for evil, just like what happened with Joseph, God meant for good. They crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. He died for their sins, but he rose so that they might be forgiven. 
And as he proclaims the gospel and he declares this, he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And it says, as the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. And they said, brothers, what should we do? And it's true, the scriptures say that, that God's word is as a double-edged sword and that it's able to cut and divide and to pierce our hearts and that when we preach God's word, we're to, to literally cut it straight, that we're to open it up and rightly divide the word of truth is what Paul tells Peter, or what Paul tells Timothy. And I was listening to a, a pastor talk about this idea this week and, and the way he said it, I, it stuck with me. He says, when, when, God's, uh, when God's people, when leaders in the church cut open the word of God, the word of God cuts to the heart of the people. When we rightly divide the word, when we rightly proclaim the gospel, the gospel cuts to our hearts. It convicts us of sin and it calls us to faith and repentance. And that's what happens here. The gospel formed church is committed to the gospel. We must never waver. Isn't it amazing? This is, this is literally weeks following Jesus's resurrection. And what Peter is proclaiming is what the church has been proclaiming now for 2,000 years. And the, the moments when the church has, has swerved away from this message, it shipwrecked its faith. But as we've stayed faithful to this message, God has built this church. It's a message that says God is faithful to his promises, that he made us and he promised to come and save us. It's a message that says we're guilty in our sin. We don't like that truth, but unless we admit that truth, unless we <clears throat> understand, uh, if we don't understand that the cross of Jesus was for our sins, then we'll never understand how it's good news because Jesus died for our sins and was raised so that we might be forgiven. And, and when we understand the, uh, the, the guilt of our sins, we begin to understand that God doesn't call us to, to climb our way out of the hole that we've dug ourselves in, but he climbed down into the grave for us so that we could come out into new life. He, he is rich in grace and mercy through his death and resurrection. And that when we hear this message, it must not fall upon us with indifference, but we respond with repentance and faith. We say, God, wherever I'm going my own way, I turn to you and I follow you. I believe, I trust in you and we receive the forgiveness of sins. We're a gospel formed church that preaches this gospel. And when this gospel is preached and people respond in faith and repentance, God forms his people, the church. But the church is not only gospel formed, it's spirit empowered. Acts 1.8 said that the, uh, the believers were to wait for the Spirit to come. And then as the Spirit comes, it's actually in the coming of the Spirit that the disciples are transformed into the church. And, and I think this question actually raises a question that people sometimes ask. How did the Old Testament saints, Israel, relate to the New Testament saints, the, the church? What's the relationship between those? Are they different? Is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? Was, was God doing something radically different back then than he's doing now? And if you've ever had that question or, or thought about that, it brings up the question of God's covenants, of how God relates to his people. And God, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, relates to his people on the basis of covenant promises. We see the Noahic covenant, we see the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. All of these covenants are really, you understand the covenants, you understand the whole shape and story of the Bible. And we are a new covenant people. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has established the new covenant. He actually says in the Last Supper with his disciples as he breaks the bread and, uh, and passes the, the wine that he says that I am establishing the new covenant. This is my blood that's shed 
for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins, which was promised in Jeremiah 31. And, and as we talk about the relationship between Israel and the church, it's usually in terms of continuity and discontinuity, ways in which God was working in similar ways in which there was dissimilar ways. And if you're interested in, in talking about that, I'd love to recommend a few books or resources uh, for you. But uh, one Baptist uh, <clears throat> historian and theologian, John Hammett, uh, he describes the relationship in terms of, uh, uh, of kind of the birth process of conception, gestation, labor, birth and growth. Um, and so uh, for all the, the mothers out there, this will be particularly relevant. Um, <clears throat> the call of Abraham, he says, is the conception of the church. When God called Abram uh, to go and to into a land that wasn't his own and to trust him and that he was going to make him a people that was a great people who was going to bring blessing not just to Israel, but to all nations. This is the birth or the conception, if you will, of the idea of the church. The term's not used, but that's the conception of the idea. The Old Testament is the gestation or preparation for the church. The ministry of Jesus is the time of labor with expectation of the imminent birth of the church. Just like we saw last week that he's talking about this church, this group that the disciples must have been like, I don't even know what a church is. What are you talking about, Jesus? Um, he was pointing forward uh, to that. And then as the, uh, the spirit comes on Pentecost, the church is born. And then the era following this is the life and growth of the church with the final fulfillment of God's purposes at the end of time. In the eschaton, we hear a voice coming from God saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what we've all been longing for since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were out of the presence of God, out of the garden, longing to be with him and he with us, to, for us to be his people, for us to be, uh, for him to be our God. This is the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament. There's differences and, um, and yet there's continuity that God has always had one people and he's always related to those people on the basis of his covenant promises. And we respond uh, because to his grace in faith. The object of our faith, the Old Testament saints look forward to God fulfilling his promises. The New Testament saints look backward to how God fulfilled his promises as we still await uh, his return. And so um, <clears throat> here in Acts 2, we see the formation of the church. And uh, it's important to, to kind of understand how that fits in. Uh, but there's two things that I want us to see about this idea of being a spirit-empowered church. And that is this. It's through the spirit that the gospel is boldly proclaimed <clears throat> so that others might come to saving faith in Jesus. It's through the spirit that the gospel is proclaimed. As the spirit comes at Pentecost... It's then that Peter stands and proclaims. Before this point, if you look back in the end of the Gospels, the disciples are scared to death. I mean, literally, they're hiding with the door locked after Jesus is resurrected, unsure of what to do. So how do you go from scared to death, hiding, to literally thousands being gathered together in Jerusalem? Peter's like, game time. Let me tell you what's happening right now. Friends, that's the Spirit of God. God tells us and Jesus tells us in the Gospels that, that he will enable his people to declare his word, to be his witnesses through his spirit. And that's exactly what happens here, that through the spirit, the gospel is boldly proclaimed. And then we see that it's through the gospel that the spirit is received by all who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It says in Acts 2.38 that Peter said that they were to repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit fell upon those 120 disciples. They boldly proclaimed the gospel. And then Peter says, if you want the Spirit, the Spirit is received through trusting in Jesus. 
1 Corinthians 12 says, For we all were baptized by one spirit into one body, that having received the spirit, we, we are brought into the church, whether Jews or Greek. And then he goes on to say this, We were all given one spirit to drink. We were all baptized into one spirit. The spirit brings us into the body, and then we are baptized into the spirit. And Romans 8, 9 says, look, if you don't have the spirit, you don't have Christ. Because if you have Christ, then you have the spirit. And this is the promise that Jeremiah 31 was talking about. He said that God was going to write his law in our hearts and he was going to give us his spirit to obey his commands. And we would have the forgiveness of sins and that we would know God. There wouldn't be a need for some uh, human mediator because the mediator would be Christ and we could have knowledge of God and we could have the spirit of God indwelling us. And interestingly, this brings up the question of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and what it means to, to walk in the Spirit. I like how one uh, author describes spirit baptism, the idea of being baptized in the Spirit. He says, Jesus is the baptizer. When we trust in Christ through faith in Christ, we're baptized uh, into the Spirit. New believers are baptized and the Spirit is the element so to speak. We're baptized into the Spirit and, and then we're incorporated into Christ's body as a result. So the baptism of the Spirit happens for the believer at the time of conversion. And here in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19, we see this uh, the coming of the Spirit in various ways. Acts 2, it comes upon this large group of believers that are gathered together. Some 3,000 respond and are added to the church, Acts 2.41 says. Acts 10, when um, even in Acts uh, 9, as the gospel goes out to the Samaritans, the apostles come, lay hands on them, they receive the Spirit. Acts 10 is Cornelius, he's a Gentile. He, he hears the gospel and the, the gospel falls upon them and, uh, and they receive the Spirit. And then Acts 19, there's this issue of some believers who have been baptized in the baptism of John. And they need Paul to, 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 ha- to help them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Each of these times, the baptism of the Spirit is related to the, the gospel going from the Jew to the Gentile. It's this movement of the gospel throughout Acts from the Jew to the Gentile. Um, and, and it's always associated with one coming to faith in Christ and then receiving the Spirit. There's kind of this transition from the Old Covenant, so to speak, to the New Covenant in Acts. But throughout Scripture, what we see is that when one trusts in Christ, they receive the Spirit. There is not a latter reception of the Spirit in the Scriptures. We receive the Spirit once and for all. And then, as believers, we walk in the Spirit and we're continually filled with the Spirit. If you look at Ephesians 5.18... Paul says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the issue of being filled with the Spirit isn't us getting more of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit getting more of us. He compares it to drunkenness because when you're filled with wine, you're drunk with wine. It's the wine that controls you. The issue of being filled with the Spirit is what controls you. Does the Spirit control your heart, your mind, your motives, your your actions, your words? And so here we have this picture that we are baptized once into the Spirit upon salvation, and then continually we walk in the Spirit and are filled with the Spirit as we submit ourselves to Christ. And it says that those who, um, as the the, the, the disciples received the Spirit, they spoke in tongues. uh, I've been been toying with, is it eligible or legible? Uh, They they spoke in words and tongues that people could understand, actual languages that people uh, could understand. 
And it was all for the confirmation of the gospel. All three times that the that tongues are spoken of here in Acts are in reference to a group of people receiving the gospel and God confirming the gospel moving to the nations. One commentator says that speaking in tongues in Acts is in all three occasions a corporate church founding group conversion phenomenon and never a subsequent spirit experience of an individual. And so here we see how the spirit is moving amongst us people powerfully. And we're, we see believers filled with spirit doing incredible things for God, uh, doing great things uh, for God. People, it says in, in Acts 2, 43, were filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being for, performed through the apostles. God was at work in great ways through the spirit, confirming the gospel and drawing people to faith in Christ. Do you want to know that what the most miraculous thing the Holy Spirit does today is? It's not heal the sick, though God does, and we should pray for him to do so, believing that he is able. It's not doing tangible signs and wonders, though God is still able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think. The greatest miracle of the Spirit of God today is when a dead heart is made alive to Christ and trust in Jesus. That's the miracle of the Spirit that he continues to work But that's not the only way the Spirit works. We'll talk about this in coming weeks, that the Spirit is at work in the church, gifting the body to do the work of ministry, gifting individual believers in the body to build up the church in various ways, in a myriad of different ways, some uh, up front, some behind the scenes, some uh, that are are praiseworthy in our eyes, some that aren't, but God using it all for His glory to build up the church. It's a beautiful thing as we think about the work of the Spirit. But what we must understand is that there is no church without the gospel and there is no church without the Spirit because the Spirit bursts the church through the gospel. So what, what are we saying in the big picture here? The Spirit empowers bold gospel proclamation without which there is no church. And faithful gospel proclamation brings about the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is essential for the church to be true to what it is. So the church is gospel formed and spirit empowered. Now think about this in your life. As you think about what that means tangibly for us as a church, are you trusting the spirit to empower you to boldly proclaim the gospel? To boldly live out the gospel? Are we a spirit empowered church? The answer is yes. The real question is, are we walking in the power that God has provided for us? But secondly, if you're hearing the gospel, perhaps, and and stirring in your heart as to what it means, let me ask you this. Is God's Spirit drawing you to trust in Jesus as your Savior? The Spirit of God is always working to empower believers to boldly proclaim and live out the gospel and is working to draw people to Himself through saving faith in Christ. Now, the Spirit has come. The Spirit, which represents God's presence and God's power, Now, if you had God's presence and God's power in your midst, what would you do? If you were Peter and the apostles, what would you have done? What game plan would you have come up with the Spirit of God evidently at work among you? What they did is they started to gather together as a local church, devoted to God, devoted to one another, and God worked through them to grow and to expand the gospel. So that's what we see in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. It's not prescriptive in the sense that it's a direct exhortation to do these things, but it is a description that's worthy of our emulation. 
It's worthy of us saying, look what they did, and let's consider how we're patterning our lives. And there's one word that comes to the forefront as we think about this group of believers that I want us to focus in on for the remainder of our time. And it's this word, devoted. Devoted. Just think about the things in your life that you're devoted to. This today marks uh, our youngest son, Graham. It's his one-year-old birthday. Um, And I think about being a dad. I'm devoted to my children. Um, The idea of devotion, literally the, the definition for the word is to continue to do something with intense effort with the possible implication of, the, of being despite difficulty, right? Uh, it, it's the commitment to something to persevere even when it's difficult. It's a good definition of parenting. It's a good definition of a lot of things we're committed to, isn't it? Work, any relationship. I mean, even the good ones have a little bit of difficulty, right? Marriage, friendship. Maybe there's some hobbies or interests that we have. I think there's varying degrees of devotion we can have, you know, perhaps in our lives. Um, but here the early church is described as devoted twice. In Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In Acts 2.46, it says every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. One commentator, I love the way he said it, the outpouring of the Spirit produced not just momentary enthusiasm, but continuing commitments. Not just momentary enthusiasm, but continuing commitments. I love that description because we're called as a church to be devoted, a devotion or a commitment, not merely to something we muster up to prove ourselves, but in response to what God has done for us. And that commitment is twofold, commitment to God and commitment to one another. In fact, we just had a membership matters class. This is how we define church membership. We believe that church is not just a place you attend, but a family to which you belong. The Bible teaches to be a part of the church is more than simply attending a worship service. It's being a member of a church. It's a commitment to watch over and care for others and to be watched over and cared for by other members. It's mutual commitment is what defines the church. Commitment to God, commitment to one another. But here's the problem. We, we are called to be committed to the church, but we live in a preference-based society. I heard one pastor describe it this way. I can't take credit for this, but I tweaked a few things uh, to add to them. His name is John Tyson. He, he described this as the gospel of America. Here's his rendering of Acts 2.42 according to a preference-based reading of Acts 2.42. They studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit it in. And then they prayed when they needed something and got coffee coffee every now and then. They were content without and had low expectation for God moving powerfully in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but kept all of their possessions for themselves and rarely shared what they had. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people and occasionally some were randomly saved. You can't say amen, you got to say ouch, right? That's his preference-based rendering of Acts 2.42 through 47. Now, listen, I'm preaching to the choir. You showed up for church today, so you're like, take it easy on me, all right? Uh, I'm here, okay? I get that. I'm not, I'm not here to, to dog on anyone. And you're like, of course, here comes the pastor talking about commitment to church on Sunday. Um, you, you're supposed to, right? Well, yes, but, but no, my, my heart isn't even for you to commit to my church. I would even be willing to say it this way. 
I would rather you be committed to any healthy local church than to be a regular um, just passerbyer of my local church. Because God calls us to be known, to know others, to give ourselves to the local church. Not on the basis of our preference, but on the basis of a commitment to him and to others in the body of Christ. So we have to ask ourselves if we could choose one word to define our relationship to the church. What would it be? What would the pattern of our life say it would be? Are we devoted? There are three areas that they say they're devoted. They're devoted to gathering. The word church literally means called out ones, but interestingly, it's used in reference to an Old Testament word uh, for the people of God that, that referred to the assembling of Israel for religious purposes. So the word church is associated with the gathering of the church. I don't have time to read all the references, but continually throughout the epistles, Paul talks about when you come together as the church, when you gather together as the church. In Acts 2.46, it says they every day gathered together in formal ways in the temple and informal ways in their homes as they broke bread from house to house. The gatherings were large and the gatherings were small. This is the pattern for why we gather in corporate worship and why we gather in small groups. It's, it's a picture of why we value personal discipleship and discipleship groups beyond even small group. It's this formal, informal, large, small, but they were committed to one another, committing to gathering together. Our strategy as a church is to gather and scatter. We gather on Sunday. Day, uh, to be encouraged and built up into the word, and we scatter into everyday rhythms to, to live with gospel intentionality. Acts 2 is a picture of that. And Hebrews 10, later on in the scriptures, is going to give a warning that it's possible to begin to neglect the meeting of gathering together, as is the habit of some. But he says to those believers, encourage one another all the more as the day is coming. I often say it this way to people. And I used to say, think about breakfast. Breakfast is an essential meal. You have to eat it every day. But I've learned along the way, some people don't eat breakfast. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with you people. But I'm going to ask you this. What is the most important meal to you in a given day? Maybe breakfast, maybe dinner. I don't know who really says lunch. Lunch is kind of a, you know, underappreciated meal, I think, you know. Um, but there's got to be one meal that you're like, I'm going to make time to eat this one meal. I want you to think about church attendance like that. You got to make time for it. You may get busy with school. Work may be stressful. Things may be crazy. I'm not telling you not to take vacations. I'm not telling you that things don't come up. I'm not telling you that you don't get sick. All of those things should be stated. But, but the average attendance of a, of a regular committed Christian is two out of five Sundays and two out of four Sundays in a month. <clears throat> I think God would call us to something more than that. Are we committed, devoted to gathering together? Living in this community, I've learned very quickly that there are some who may be hindered from church on Sunday. We've had good conversations in our own body, and there are times when you can't change that. You can't, you can't always dictate what day you get to work. You can request, but you may not be given that day. And, and I recognize that challenge. And for us, I would say the most important thing is not to be isolated from community, but to give yourself to community so that others can know, know you, love you, and encourage you. It may look like informal rather than formal. It may look like small rather than large. It may be you doing a pastiche of whatever you can get uh, because life is crazy and things are hard. But give yourself to being committed to the local church because it is our right response to the gospel. Know that you're not alone and don't go it alone. And I, I said this earlier. I know I'm talking to those who showed up for church. So here's again, let me give you a, a caution and encouragement. I'm telling you this today because there may be a day where you think otherwise because devotion can, be, <clears throat> can devolve into neglect. All those who have neglected going to church were once devoted to going to church. 
but the encouragement is <clears throat> that neglect can be awakened into devotion. So let's never write off anyone who's struggling. Let's never consider ourselves beyond struggling. But I'm saying this to you today because, student, you may need to hear it in October. You may need to hear it in November. I'm saying this to you today, parents, because you may need to hear it when your child is strung out and crazy and it just seems like too much to go. I'm saying it to you, young professional, because you need to hear it that life's going to get busy, the job's going to get stressful, something's going to go different than you planned, and the car's not going to work, the relationship's going to fall apart, something's going to happen unexpected. And you're going to need to know that you ought to be committed to God's church. But then it goes beyond that to say that they not only were devoted to gathering together as if just being together was important, they were devoted to God and they were devoted to one another. I'm going to go through this quickly because of our time and some of it reiterates what we said last week. But let me give you it this way. They were devoted to God in four ways, into teaching, the hearing from God, into prayer, speaking to God, and then in the Lord's Supper, remembering God as they broke bread, um, and then finally in worship, exalting God. We saw last week that the church must be centered on the word. The apostles passed on the teaching of Jesus, the lessons on discipleship on the road to Jerusalem, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables, the ethics of the kingdom of God, all these things they taught him, taught them, but they also taught them about the significance of his death and resurrection. And God continually works through his spirit and his word to help his people become who they're supposed to be. We cannot be devoted to God and neglect his word. That's also why we can't be devoted to God and neglect gathering together because of the teaching and preaching of the word is central. But also, if you were to think of the taking in of God's word and the uh, of hearing from God and speaking to God as your two arms, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know uh, why, but I've got motivated to start working out a little more regularly. I've gone three days in a week, so that's the, me for that's my devotion uh, to my, my exercise routine. Ask me about it next week, see if I keep up with it. But when I work out, I notice that my dominant arm, my right arm, is way stronger than my less dominant arm, my left arm. When I lift, I'm feeling pretty good on this side, and then I'm like straining on this side, right? It's like that, I think, sometimes with our taking in of God's word. You know, we've got that muscle pretty developed over the years. But a lot of times our talking to God is underdeveloped. We need to develop uh, our prayer life. The church was committed not only to God speaking through his scriptures, but Donald Whitney wrote a book on spiritual disciplines. He said, God also has a very large ear continually open to us. Isn't that good? He's not only got spoken to us in his word, but he has a very large ear continually open to us. We must grow in prayer. And the church was a praying church in Acts, and it must be true of us. The vitality of the church, one commentator says, is a measure of the reality of its prayers. If we got what we prayed for, what would our church look like? Something to think about. In the Lord's Supper, they remember to God, they broke bread. And at this time, the Lord's Supper is often a part of a larger meal that they ate together. And then they partake of the Lord's Supper elements at the end of that meal. First Corinthians 11 is a picture of that. They were all coming together, gorging themselves and getting drunk at the, the common meal. And the Lord's Supper was being, was being harmed by it. Those who were poor were left out. Those who are rich had great and they splurged themselves. And there's all this division in the body of Christ. And I think what's happening here is that they, they are gathering together. Breaking bread is a reference to sharing a meal. They did that from home to home, but it also had particular reference to the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And it's through the Lord's Supper that we remember what Christ has done for us. We remember the work of the cross, his death and resurrection and the forgiveness of our sins. And then it says they were worshiping God. Verse 47, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. 
when we know the gospel, we can't help but respond in worship because God's worthy. He made us for his glory. That worship is the right response to what he's done for us. They did it as they went from house to house. They were praising God and they did it as they gathered together. They were devoted to God, but then they were devoted to one another. This word fellowship is at the heart of this devotion to one another. It literally means sharing. They were devoted to, they had fellowship together in Christ. And then they had fellowship with one another. And their fellowship with one another was marked by genuine love. Look at verse 44. It says, all the believers were together and held things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. The selling of their property and distributing it as they had need was done occasionally, and it was done voluntarily. We know that they still gathered in house to house, so apparently they didn't sell all their houses. Um, and Acts 5, as, as the issue arose with Ananias and Sapphira, it wasn't that everyone was required to sell their house. It was a voluntary thing. Ananias and Sapphira said they sold it and they were giving all the money, but they lied about it. They did it to please man rather than to please God, and they were judged accordingly. So here we see this is voluntary. It's occasionally, but it was done to meet needs. It was marked by genuine love and generous care. Think about that. Is that how our life together is defined? Genuine love and generous care. Man, I pray it is. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And this church family, if you're looking for a church family, I don't mean to, uh, to say my church is the best church. There's a lot of great ones. This is my favorite. But I think God, by his spirit, has allowed us to have a measure of being marked by genuine love and genuine care to the degree that we stay committed to his word and committed uh, to one another as the scripture call us to. I think we have to be marked by genuine love and generous care. The outcome of being a devoted church. What is the outcome? Being devoted to gathering, devoted to God, devoted to one another. Verse 47 tells us, Every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. What do you think piqued the interest of the people at that time? Some 3,000 who had come to faith in Christ and began meeting together, most likely in, uh, yes, in the temple, but in smaller gatherings in these homes as churches. What do you think piqued the interest of others? I think it was the lives of believers together. Mark Dever is known for saying the lives of Christians together in the church display visibly the gospel that we proclaim audibly. The church is the gospel on display. And it's only on display when our life together through devotion to one another and devotion to God proclaims the gospel and displays the gospel. There's real power in being a church that declares the gospel while also displaying the gospel in our life together. That's what we're praying God allows us to be at TCC, and I believe that's what God's calling his church to be in Acts 2. Let's pray uh, together now.